Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Cool fact: A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss. plushcare.com/weightloss. Hi everyone, and welcome to the House of Pot. I'm Kabe, and I'm Lizzie. And if this is your first time listening, we're a medical sort of podcast where we try to discuss medicine and health in a relatable way. And we will answer questions you may not feel comfortable asking your doctor, and definitely won't bring up to your friends. We have one of my old buddies coming in today to talk to us from medical school. From medical school, his name is Bobby Devari. He is a doctor who is now in Southern California. He's very interested in alcohol abuse. That's right, and why we're under treating it, and how we can do better about treating it. The opinions on this podcast are broadcasted for educational and informational purposes only and do not represent the opinions of our employers. These opinions are not intended as a diagnosis, treatment, or as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult a local physician or other healthcare professional for your specific healthcare and or medical needs or concerns. Welcome back to the House of Pod. We're here with Bobby Davari, family medicine doctor. He is the chair of pharmacy and therapeutics at Kaiser Orange County. Bobby, welcome to the show, buddy. Oh, thanks for having me, guys. I've been looking forward to this. Thanks for coming. I'm a huge fan. Uh, full disclosure, Bobby is also uh, a very good friend of mine. Yeah, I've known him since medical school. so I didn't know that. It might get weird. Yeah, we, we go way back. I feel yeah. a little left out. Should I leave? Yeah, for just like five minutes. <laughs> okay, <laughs> we're going to take a pause. Just kidding. We're not. We're on a sh- strict clock. So w- actually, there's so much to talk about, but there actually is some like real like medical business for us to discuss. Mm. And that is, in particular, your interest in sort of shifting the paradigm of alcohol abuse treatment. So before we talk about that, can you give us a little background on alcohol abuse in the United States? Yeah, so um, I think the the data out there is pretty clear now that we we're seeing usage of alcohol at levels that we had never seen before, and the death rates from cirrhosis increasing. Just a recent study that just came out showing that 
there's a 65% increase, um, uh, deaths from cirrhosis, uh, just, just recently. Just gonna, so cirrhosis for, for our listeners. Yeah, liver, liver, liver failure, um, from alcohol use. Yeah. That cave and I's um, GI liver doctor see yeah. probably every day, um, cirrhosis and alcohol abuse and it's clearly on the rise. Right. And, and what we know now is that there's about one in 10 Americans die um, every year from alcohol use, whether it's from the medical side or from trauma or um, accidents and so on. So um, it's the number three uh, uh, most preventable cause of death in the United States. Number one being obesity, then smoking, and then alcohol. So it's up there. Let me ask you, is that um, all alcohol use, like people like just in getting drunk if they're not necessarily chronic abusers of alcohol or is this, are we talking specifically about people who chronically abuse uh, alcohol? Uh, I think it's just all comers. So all, all mortality related to alcohol is, yeah, is one in 10 include Americans. accidents in there. It could be right. honestly just a, a healthy person who got, who got murdered. Right. Or yeah. Or a 16 year old that first time drinking ever, you know, drank too much and drove. Um, so from, from that all the way on up, but, um, but, uh, so there's some estimates now I saw recently around 40% of our patients in the hospital have um, an alcohol use disorder. And how do you define that? Good question. Good question. So um, there's strict sort of criteria for it. The, um, there's a di- diagnostic and statistical manual that um, our psychiatric colleagues put out that sort of tell us what, what you know, sort of criteria you have to meet. And your doctor could go over that with you. But generally, um, I, I define it as a three C's, which is compulsive use, um, inability to cut down, and then continued use despite, despite harm. So I think for listeners, like, how do, you, how do I know if I have an alcohol use disorder? Um, and you'll notice I use alcohol use disorder instead of saying, how do I know if I'm an alcoholic? Um, I think that's one of the main things, I, I think a take home, if you remember nothing else from this talk or from this conversation is to remember that that's the big change right now is we've, we've moved away from labeling people as either alcoholic or not an alcoholic. Um, there's really a spectrum between unhealthy alcohol use, no alcohol use disorder, unhealthy alcohol use, mild, moderate, and then severe. That's a great point. I, I think there's a lot of people who could easily convince themselves I'm not an alcoholic. And with most of our definitions are probably right, but they may have abused alcohol and they may not be using it the right way, obviously. So um, that's, a, that's an interesting paradigm shift right there. Do you ever um, use like the CDC guidelines? Because I'll say to my patients, you know, really for women, maybe one drink a day. Mm-hmm. And, and patients often don't know that one regular sized like 12 ounce beer equals one three ounce glass of wine equals one shot of hard liquor. You know, patients sometimes think, you know, oh, I'm just drinking wine. It's okay. Mm -hmm. And they don't realize that Mm -hmm. the alcohol content in what is considered one dose or one drink is the same, no matter how that vessel is consumed. Yeah. I I, I think the, the, the real take home is, is making sure that you check with somebody else. If you think that you might have an alcohol use disorder, you talk with your doctor. I mean, I think that would be a great advice. I wouldn't talk to your friends because 
usually you surround yourself with friends that have similar vices. <laughs> so it's like, you know, it's like, do I have a golf golfing problem or a surfing problem? Yeah. But if I ask my friends, they probably surf or golf more than I do, or, you know, play volleyball more than I do. So, so Orange County. I know, right? So, golfing. I know. We have to stop a golfing disease. I know, right? Yeah, we it's do. It's a problem. It is a problem. It's very addictive. So we also in the office, I'll ask patients, not how much do you drink? Because they'll say occasionally, moderately, zero. I'll say specifically in a week, how many drinks do you have? And if they won't come in, I'll say, okay, in a month. Like I just, I really try to make people think about, you know, something more concrete than just small, medium, and large. Right. You know, it just is not applicable. What are the current screening recommendations and what are the current sort of treatment strategies? So if you, if, if you want to sort of define what a primary care doc does, or a family practice doc does, we're like the experts or the specialists in screening. So in, in sort of deciding, so who needs to be screened for what and how often. For preventative healthcare, yeah. Exactly, for preventive healthcare is, is sort of my area of expertise. And so we really go by the recommendations of the United States Preventative Services Task Force. And they recommend annual screening for alcohol use disorder. Why? Well, because they show that doing that actually helps make, help us make helps us make the diagnosis and then helps us to treat. Is we use a one question questionnaire, which has been validated. Um, I like where you're going. So the one question, because it's much faster and and just as effective, but more effective really, is have you ever in the last 12 months? In the last 12 months, have you had more than four drinks in one sitting? If you're a woman, or five if you're a man. If you have, then. The, that should alert the doctor to continue to ask you more questions to see if you have an alcohol use disorder. So it's a it's an interesting screening question. Just it one question. It doesn't rule in alcohol abuse nope. disorder, mm -hmm. but at least alerts you to that right. there may be like a what percentage chance that this person does have. So it's we use sort of sensitivity specificity numbers. It's about eighty percent chance that you have you're somewhere on the spectrum. So if your listeners out there, if I ask you, hey, if you've, have you had, if you're a woman, more than four drinks in one sitting in the last year, you guys are looking at each other. <laughs> so I think I saw you have five last night. Anyway, so the point is that, you know, that just should sort of spur you to sort of be curious and investigate whether or not you have a use disorder and where you are on the spectrum. It's actually really easy to do. You could do a Google search for the DSM, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual Criteria for Alcohol Use Disorder, it's 11 questions. Ask yourself those questions if you have four or more, or three or two or three of those questions are positive, you have a mild disorder. If four or five are positive, you have moderate. And if you have six or more, you have a severe alcohol use disorder. Now, here's the deal. Here's the, here's the big issue. The, the big issue is that, and this is something that I've been working on in Kaiser, is that Roughly, there's around 15% of the U.S. population that falls somewhere on the moderate to severe spectrum, which is crazy because that's a lot of people. We have about 5 million patients in Southern California. And so if you think about 15% of those patients have an alcohol use disorder, we're talking a lot of people. Wait, so, aren't you actually surprised it's not a higher percentage? So I'm talking moderate to severe. So somewhere on the spectrum, it's probably Everyone's closer to 30%. Everyone's got mild, moderate, or severe. Yeah, somewhere on the spectrum. It's probably 30%. It's a little bit higher number. But moderate to severe. Now, what's interesting to me about that number is that it's about the same amount of people have, same percentage of people have diabetes, type 2 diabetes. And what's interesting to me, and the reason I'm here to talk to you all, is because our diabetics 
I love you guys, but our diabetics, 100% of our diabetics, or nearly 100% of our diabetics are offered medications to treat their diabetes. But our patients with alcohol use disorder, less than 10% of them, I think the numbers are 5%, are ever offered medications to help with treatment. And we have very effective medications for treatment. And that's something that's really not well, well known in the general public or even amongst doctors. So before we talk about the treatment strategy that you're mentioning, l- let me just first ask, you know, if we really do believe, we've talked about mm-hmm. um, abuse of drugs and alcohol a little bit on the show before, but if we really do believe that alcohol abuse is a disease, you, why don't we treat it as such? Why do people treat diabetes and alcohol abuse so differently? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I... I I don't have a. I think I don't have a good answer. There's multiple reasons. One, I, I, I think there's a lot of stigma associated with it, and it, I think part of it comes from our language around sort of labeling people as alcoholic or not alcoholic. I remember the old adage back when we were training. It was like, how do you know if your patients, if the patient's uh, an alcoholic? Well, if he drinks more than his doctor, mm-hmm. you know. It's like so. I, I think, and and what you see, in fact, is is. Is alcohol use disorder actually affects um, people that are very motivated, actually to a larger degree, because you know if you're going to be really good at studying and getting straight A's, you're also going to be really good at drinking and sort of drinking mm-hmm. more. You're going to be better at drinking than anybody else. Dang it, right? Your ambition you're goes, amb- you're so goes ambitious to all to facets of life. Right. I th- I think another thing. I mean, there's clearly stigma. Although if diabetes, you're saying maybe type two is associated with obesity. We know there's a ton of stigma with that. But I think that a big difference for me having trained in just general medicine and obviously now not really practicing it is, you know, with diabetes, there's a number that you're following. You're following the sugars, you're, sh- you're following the hemoglobin A1C with alcohol. Like what is your endpoint? Like, you know, it's not like one pill and one sugar level and you're, you've have, you have success. The measurement of success or failure is much harder, I think with alcohol substance abuse stuff. And it's really, you know, we'll get into it, but it's not, just like start a pill and okay, we'll just check, come back in three months. It's not, it's not like that. It's not as sort of quote unquote easy. Right. And I think that that turns doctors off because we, we really like to be, um, uh, outcome driven. Right. And we like to see closure. Like I, I gave this antibiotic and the infection went away Right. and now I feel like I did something and I did something good. And, I'm trying to really change that narrative because I don't think that serves our patients really well. It's it's very interesting. It is treating a disease as opposed to a person, which is, again, the concept of narrative medicine. We had Emily Silverman on. We talked about it. Um, and it is, again, treating the circumstances and the human and not just the number, not just a disease, which is hard for us because that's what we're better at. So Right, exactly. So the treatment strategies for alcohol you know, traditionally we just say stop, right? Like when people are really, especially again, Kaveh and I, we see cirrhotics, which is scarred down, not really working livers. We would say, please stop a hundred percent of all alcohol intake. So you as a family practice doctor and having done a lot of, you know, work in this, what is the treatment strategy that you would take? And is there a step-by-step approach or just sort of a general kind of shotgun? These medications are, are getting to the point where so, they're so effective that if you don't use them or at least offer them to patients, it's like, you know, you really are behind the times. And, and I'll tell you, the, the, the way 
that we were doing this before is you would say, first of all, doctors really were not screening patients for alcoholic disorder generally in, the, in primary care. It really wasn't happening. And where it was happening, it, it was like, you know, try to cut down, you know, if you have a problem, if you want help, let me know, come back. Or you'll refer them to like an addiction specialist. Or you go, you know, you know what, if you want, here's a phone number, go see the addiction medicine specialist. But here's the problem with that approach. Let me just, the problem with that approach is that um, most people have jobs and they can't go see, they, they, don't, they can't take time off to go see that. They can barely take time off to come see me as their primary care doc. Right. So then we're saying, A, you have to buy into this fact that you have a problem. B, um, you have to go see another specialist who then will see you at some point in the future. Right. And at that point in the future, maybe you have motivation to quit or maybe you don't at that point. Maybe you lose the motivation to do it at that point. Mm-hmm. And then you have to pay another copay right. to go do that. And as you all know, I mean, this, that's, the more that's a lot to ask. you right. put in place, the it's less exactly. likely that's they are to follow through bar- treatment. It's a lot of barriers. So Money, the, appointment, time. That's right, so really to bring it back to the diabetes analogy, it would be like diagnosing someone with diabetes and then saying to every one of them, you need to see an endocrinologist to get treatment. I will not give you your insulin or your metformin or any of your medications until you see the endocrinologist. Which is a specialist in diabetes and hormones in general, and that's, again, another appointment. And primary care doctors need to be equipped with certain basic skills of treatment of very common diseases like diabetes, like alcohol use disorder. So you're sort of arguing that the paradigm shift here has to be, instead of this going out to a specialist, instead of this being pushed off to a later date, to address it right there at that point of contact with that patient when you're there. As a family practice doctor, as an outpatient doctor, are you meeting resistance with this? Right. So it's such a paradigm shift, I think, for now, to be fair, primary care docs, the average number of complaints we deal with in one visit is around three, uh, two to three complaints. We almost never get someone that comes in and says, hey, I just have this knee problem. Can you fix it? And can you help me? It's, it's always, I have this problem plus these three other things. Now, and that's gotten a little bit worse with time because people get busier. Money is still tight. For most people, in fact, I think the latest data I saw, most Americans can't come up with $2,000. That means not only do they not have $2,000, but no one do they, do they know, no one they know has that much money to help them out. So if their car breaks down and they need to fix their car, they, they wouldn't be able to come up with that kind of cash. A lot of people in the U.S., majority of people, 50% or more, are living paycheck to paycheck. So I don't assume any of my patients are independently wealthy and they can they have an unlimited funds. I assume that they're going to have some trouble. And so I just, I just try to help them out with as many problems as I can. But the point is most primary care doctors are under the gun to take care of as many problems as they can in one visit. So you're so, saying instead of, instead of stopping, instead of just saying cut back, harm reduction, if mm-hmm. you will, like just, you know, this is, I'm, I'm identifying this problem. You know, a lot of people don't know that there is medication so what is that? You know, how do we get that word out and what's the, the strategy to start it? Right. So I think that the, the area that I've really been pushing on with Kaiser, and I have to sort of give credit to the, our, our sort of leaders in Kaiser for seeing the value of that and looking at the data and being really open to the data, to the data with me and said, oh, my gosh, you know, these medications work to help people reduce their drinking. The problem is that... Um, 
the the medication that was sort of held up as the the treatment for alcohol use disorder is antabuse or disulfiram. And that's not an effective medication. That makes you sick if you drink. So if you have trouble with alcohol and you want to drink, you just stop that medication. Right. And then you go back to drinking. But what it is is negative conditioning. So if you drink alcohol, you feel like garbage. You get red and flushed and hot and bothered and you don't want to drink anymore. But it's really an awful, it's like sort of slapping someone. Yeah, it's just not, it's just not an effective way to, and it's been, it's been disproven. Not only that, it's actually dangerous. So if you have someone, for example, that's a diabetic or they're an epileptic or they have other medical conditions where if they were to get violently ill and vomit, right, they could stroke out or they could, their blood pressure goes up and they could have a heart attack while they're vomiting. So it's just not something we, we would, we would want our primary care doctors to do. And it's really, it's really been debunked as a treatment modality for, for treating alcohol use disorder. So, but we have, we have good medicines now that have actually been around for a long time now. It's been around over 10 years, almost 15 years now. It reduces your drinking by about 80%, your heavy drinking, the medication. The, the medication is called naltrexone. Um, there's another medication called acamprosate, which is about equally effective. So, and they are they block cravings, right? So they they do to a degree. So acamprosate is thought to block cravings. Naltrexone disrupts the pleasure pathway in the brain, so it, it's an opiate blocker. So it actually blocks your your brain naturally produces what we call endorphins, and so what it does is it blocks the endorphin release that's thought to sort of be the pathway that your brain takes to make you addicted to things. And so if you take the medicine and you continue to drink, you don't form those same addictive pathways in your brain. And so it seems to, it seems to disrupt that pathway. And what we find, and I've been doing this now for a few years where I've been treating um, patients with the medication, what they'll tell me is that they sort of just lose interest in the, in the alcohol slowly over time. It's not something that they sort of obsessively think about or like want to keep going. They can, they still can have a drink. And that's my second point. My first point was that people can't afford to go see another specialist. It's expensive. The, the, the second point is that a lot of people, you can't expect them to completely change their lifestyle right? It's a, it's a big ask for people, A, to spend a lot of money to go see a specialist over, you know, uh, several visits and then to, you know, talk about all their problems with a therapist or whatever. It's, that's a lot to expect from someone that's busy working, supporting a family. And then it's also a, a big thing to ask someone to completely change all their friendships, all their, all their, ha- where they go to have fun, how they relax. It's a really big ask for patients. So, so let, let me, uh, Touch this kind of go back on two things here. One, you, you kind of mentioned the data that shows its efficacy. Could you touch on that a little bit more? Can you tell me what is what's the percentage improvement we're seeing here? You were about to go into numbers needed to treat. Tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah. So the way we sort of so one of my one of my roles at Kaiser is I, I chair the pharmacy and therapeutics committee, and one of my roles there is to look at how good medications are and whether or not we want to, as a, as a group of physicians, begin using that drug to um, help our patients. And we have a, a, a dedicated team of pharmacists. They're called evidence pharmacists. And they look at these medications to, decide, to help us decide whether or not we want to really begin using those medications. And so I've been watching um, this medication, naltrexone and acamprosate. I've had my eye on it for about 12 years now. 
Uh, I'm just waiting for the data to accumulate. And there's this group called the Cochrane um, Cochran, uh, Reviewers or Cochrane Database where they look at, they, they combine all the trials over a long period of time. And they, I've been waiting for them to sort of do this sort of review and they've done it and they've, they've put, have combined all these trials and they came up with a number needed to treat of 10, which in medical parlance is a really good number. Um, that's like a really effective drug in terms of for treatment. So just to put it in perspective, if you go to see your doctor for a sinus infection, the number needed to treat for a sinus infection is around 12. So... If you think about it, if you go to a doctor with a sinus infection and he gives you antibiotics, you go, oh, he's doing a good job. He's giving it's, but it's actually less effective than the drug that we use to treat alcoholic disorder. For people who don't know what number needed to treat means, that, that means basically you would have to treat 10 people right. to get the benefit, right. which you might say, why isn't it a uh, number needed to treat one? one? Why can't everybody? That's just not how medicine works, unfortunately. Most medicine doesn't work for everybody all the time. So the number needed to treat 10 here is not bad. It's really good, yeah. What's so the, what is the, um, what are the downsides of the medications and is everybody um, a candidate to start it? Like what are the, the risks? That's a great question. So, um, that, so that the, the, the research figure we use for that is called a number needed to harm. How many people do you need to put on the medication to harm one person? And interestingly for antibiotics for sinusitis, the number is eight. So... Um, that's a pretty, that's not good. You want the number to be really high. We don't have those figures for these medications, um, only because the harms are not really there. Um, they're, they're sort of, a um, their liver function test might be elevated. Some people get nausea, but it's, I, I don't have clear data on that. It's probably around 50 or a hundred. The continued heavy use of alcohol is, um, is a daily drug use. It's so um, using a medication to help sort of reduce that daily drug use is really, I think, a key uh, point to make because the we now know that the, these increases in sort of death from um, cirrhosis related to alcohol is is a, is really at epidemic proportions. And so the now the medications. Um, every medication has side effects and naltrexone, the main one would probably be nausea, some upset stomach. I would say similar to, you know, um, uh, side effects you would get from antidepressants, some nausea, upset stomach kind of stuff, but nothing, uh, severe. The effort we've been making it, you know, in, in, in my area in Southern California and Kaiser is to empower primary care doctors to begin um, discussing it earlier with their patients, start helping their patients to sort of make the diagnosis without judgment mm -hmm. and just to say, hey, look, this is where you are on the spectrum. You have a mild use disorder right now based on the criteria. And we review the criteria with them and go, look, you meet three out of the 11 criteria. You have a mild use disorder. And that's just where you're at. We can check it again in a year and see if it's gotten worse, better, or the same. Um, and I think similar to diabetes, you know, you don't call the patient and go, you know, oh, your A1C, your, your blood sugars are up. You disgust me. Like, we don't do that. Like, that, right. that'd be silly to do, you know. And so we shouldn't be doing that with, with people that drink alcohol. And similarly, what, what, I, what I think the drugs, the medications do is that it gives the doctors a ticket to talk to the patients about their use at the next visit.
sounds like the medications are effective. Mm-hmm. The naltrexone sounds like it works pretty well. I mean, I'm assuming you can't use it if someone's taking opiates for pain or something Correct. else. But it sounds like they're, they're, they work pretty well, mm-hmm. not that much in terms of side effects. Um, are you getting resistance to this? Are people accepting this? Because just like you said, these, these family practice doctors, right. these outpatient doctors are being slammed. Right. Are, is this something that people are, are receiving well? Yeah, I, you know, I'll tell you, there's a lot of people in, in leadership that were worried that the, the family docs would be overwhelmed um, because, again, we just deal with a lot of problems in one visit. And, um, and I haven't seen a lot of that. A lot of the family docs are really happy to be able to help and have another tool in their tool belt to help folks. Because this, you know, more seasoned clinicians don't find it overwhelming, but they really do find it like really helpful to have another thing they can help patients with. And one of the neat things about being a primary care doctor is you're, you have a big picture view. So I'll see someone that comes to see me with obesity, and they're 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 obese, and that maybe is the source of their high blood pressure. But then if you take one more step back, you go, where did the obesity come from? Well, every time they have two or three beers, they eat about 30% more food. And that's been shown in studies that if you drink, you, you eat about 15 to 30% more because you lose that perception of being full. Mm. And so then if you take a step back, you go, well, hold on a second. You're drinking, you know, two or three beers a day. Maybe that's the root of the problem. And so to ask that person to go exercise is, I guess, great. But now they're working out an hour a day, but they're still drinking two to three beers a day and eating 15 to 30% more than they used to, there's no amount of exercise they're going to be able to do to counteract the root of the problem, which is the alcohol. Now, the alcohol isn't the root of every problem, but if you don't address it, you're just missing a piece. And I've found that a lot of primary care doctors are really excited to have an ability to sort of engage this issue. And in fact, um, our national organization, the American uh, Academy of Family Physicians, is now really endorsing the use of these medications within primary care. So you said that, um, you know, you've been sort of keeping your eye on the naltrexone mm-hmm. and for over a decade. And, mm-hmm. but, uh, clearly this is an interest. How did, you know, is this something that you're always interested in addiction medicine or is there something else that sort of inspired you to pursue this? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I actually have, I think we, you know, if you look back, we all probably have some people we know in our families or friends that have struggled with alcohol use disorder. Um, or, I know in medical or school any addiction. or any addiction, but yeah. specifically alcohol, it's just ubiquitous. Um, but, you know, I had friends in, in medical school and college that sort of struggled with alcohol use disorder. And then um, I have, prob- I would say, at least seven family members, aunts and uncles um, and my own father that sort of struggled with alcohol Um use problems for, for years and years. So I kind of saw it growing up. And so for me, it was always one of those things where, um, I kind of on the ground floor, I kind of saw people struggle with it and then not really be able to take the time out. Um, just a personal example with my father, he was a, he was a fighter pilot. He'd been a POW. Um, he'd survived, uh, torture and, um, you know, he was able to sort of deal with all that and, and sort of come, you know, and be successful in this country. But then the alcohol, he still struggled with alcohol. And so to my mind, I was like, you know, if this guy being so strong and being so amazing at, you know, everything else to then struggle with this thing, it it was just mind blowing to me. Even as a, as a kid, I thought, how is it possible that, you know, my hero can't, 
sort of kick this thing. It was always sort of, to me, very puzzling. And um, so I think that always stuck with me. So I wanted to sort of see if there was a way that yeah. I could fix it. And I would have these conversations with patients, but it was never, it was always, it's, it, it's just, it's really not an easy thing to just, it's, addiction's way bigger than just saying, oh, just quit. You know, it's much harder. It's interesting though that you have that perspective. And I think that's sort of the healthy one to have, which instead of being, angry or disgusted mm. with people with addiction, you empathize because you recognize that uh, you know this is someone who can be really strong in almost every other aspect of life. Mm -hmm. But there's something about this particular problem that can get you, even if you're the strongest person. Well, do you think he was, I mean, coping with PTSD? Like that's a lot of trauma to go through, um, you know, if he yeah, was tortured. Sure. Uh, and at, you know, in those times, you know, in the 70s and 80s, it's not like we really even made that diagnosis. Right. You right. know, and... Um, and it wasn't really recognized as an issue. Um, and so I think that, uh, you know, you dealt with things the way you could, and, you know, with what tools you had and alcohol was the tool. I mean, um, even now I do. I and, mean, you know, that's why I asked about how do we prevent even having this conversation? I think we all know people use alcohol as stress relief, anxiety relief to forget your problems. And, you know, there's, there's more that can be done than just reaching for a beer at the end of a hard day, but that's easy you know, and, and it's not going away anytime soon. So we're probably going to see more and more of this. Well, what, what's funny to me is, um, how, how, uh, glorified it is in the, in the, in media and how, uh, normalized it's heavy use is in the, in the media. So if you look at, um, for example, like popular media, like movies and, you know, and shows, you know, it's like you, uh, you know, you, you, you get the job, you go and celebrate at the bar, right? You, you, you get the girl, you meet the girl at the bar and you go, you guys, you know, sort of meet at the bar and you have drinks at the bar and that's how you get the girl. Um, or eh, she dumps you and where do you go? You know, you lose your job. Where do you go to the bar and you, you drink. So it's like every roads lead to, uh, the bar. <laughs> the bar. <laughs> so right, right. And not that there's anything wrong with, you know, going and having a drink at the bar. It's fine. But I think that it's really one of those things that is just so um so so popular that it's the first thing people think of when they have a negative emotion it's like that's or a positive emotion it's funny it's either side let's have it a is, drink to celebrate it's right? funny because it's popular but it is also and it's glamorized but it's also the opposite i mean you think of like the hangover and all these movies you can think of right away it's like the work you people wake up and they have no idea who's next to them. Like that is, sh and vomiting, like that is actually shown, you know? You know what? You're right. But at the same time, it, even it's that silly. is sort of glamorized. Like, it oh, is. I got so wasted last weekend. I didn't know about it. Like, like that's something to be kind of proud of almost, yeah. you know? I know. And like people are almost proud of that aspect of getting so blitzed that they have a hangover like experience. Yeah. They, they almost kind of want that in a way now. Well, didn't, didn't I, mean, I just remember when I was in college, I, I felt an expectation to have those experiences, like those hangover experiences where you're mm -hmm. out and you're making some big mistakes, you know, and you could blame it on the alcohol, you know, and just do there's, those things. There's a and, song. Yeah, I've heard. Um, uh, but, you know, there's this, it's just, it's funny that that it's really in the, it's, it's in the culture. It um, is our culture. Yeah. yeah. It's funny because when you when you talk to people that have a really severe addiction issue, um, they don't wear it as a badge of honor. They they understand that they have an issue and they they are dying to quit. They would love to stop. And they 
will tell you, I w- really wish I could stop doing this. And I, I just, I try and I can't, and I keep trying and I can't. A lot of them have tried several times and they can't do it. Um, and my father was no exception. And he really made sure that me and my brother sort of knew that there was no glamour in it and that it was not something that he was proud of and that he was like, he passed that on to us to say, you know, don't do this. This is, this is, this is stupid. I shouldn't do it. And sort of passed that on. And I thought that was, that was a real gift because neither me or my brother really, you know, we don't we never really drank ever. So it kind of kept us out of doing that. Now I have my other issues with, you know, sports. I play too much, but I, I have that. I feel that sort of, I have that addictive oh, personality. Humble brag. Did yeah. you hear that? Totally. I'm totally addicted to yeah. being great. Yeah, That's really. the only problem. I'm addicted to working yeah, well, out. That was yeah. a humble brag. Right. <laughs> um, no, that, that is interesting background that you have in that. Has this treatment uh, or studying this treatment, has this um, affected your relationship with your dad? Are you like, are you, have you talked to him about this? Yeah, so um, I think that the, the interesting thing for me is that the treatment, that having a medication um, makes it more objective. You could just say, hey, you know, how's it going on the medicine? Yeah. It's a little different than being like, hey, you know, you drinking again? Why haven't you quit yet? Why haven't you quit? Right. You What's can say how's the medicine is much better than the, because I have patients who will say their labs aren't great and I'll say, are you drinking? And I always ask, but I, I know it's such a charged question because if the answer is no, they feel like I'm accusing them. And if they, the answer is yes, they feel shame and it's sort of a lose-lose, but it's totally our job to ask. I ask 100% of the time. It's yeah. just always awkward. 100% of the time, awkward. <laughs> this is amazing stuff. I have no idea these medications existed. Um, does, does it work for anything other than alcoholism, other addictions in general? Or has that been tried yet at all? It has. To your, to your point, yes, it, it can. This medica- same medication can be used for, um, they're using it for actually opiate use disorder too. Um, uh, but it actually has just got FDA approved as an active ingredient in the medication Contrave, which is a weight loss medication. Mm-hmm. So because so it's blocking those, uh, the craving. pleasure pathways. Yeah. That right. You get. Yeah. So it's bupropion plus naltrexone are the two active ingredients in Contrave. Um, that then is now being sold as a weight loss medication. So the, the hope is that it's not medication that'll make you sick if you Correct. eat like that disulfiram medication you talked about in the beginning Correct. or antabuse, right. but instead it just makes you crave it less. Correct. Sounds like this medicine would be good for obesity, alcohol, and opioid addiction. It sounds like I'm, I'm magic. To- all the all addictions. Right. So. Do people get addicted to those? What's it, to, the, the, to the medicine? Um, I don't think that's, that's really not, remember the, the medication sort of blocks the, 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 the chemical in your brain that produces addiction. So it's almost like a double negative. It's almost like, but, a, but if you're blocking pop- those pleasure pathways, mm-hmm. are people who take these medications having like any sort of depression or are they having like yeah. anhedonia, which means just not like finding joy in changes. life? Yeah. So I think this is a good point. So, um, for patients that are struggling with dual diagnoses, meaning that they have severe psychological or psychiatric problems like major depression, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, any of those things, plus um, an alcohol use disorder or drug use disorder, you know, those patients really do need to be under the care of a psychiatrist. I think we should really take a time out and make sure I make that point very clear. 
very complicated. We have specialists for that reason. Those people become very complicated. My big problem is that less than 5 or 10% of these patients that have alcohol use disorder are ever even offered the medication. Right. Anyone can do it. We can do it, you know. I mean, so. I would I would love it if someday and I monitor this on a, on a regional level. Like me, I, I monitor 5 million patients and see what they're getting. I would love to see one day a podiatrist order naltrexone for alcohol. <laughs> I would just love that. Well, what a and dream. It, it sounds, mm. <laughs> right? That's like God, that would be like, dream. I would celebrate um, <laughs> with, a, with a non-alcoholic beverage. Um, More likely you're going to end up going out for a drink with right. your podiatrist. Oh, that's how it starts. I would have right. a club soda. Yeah. Um, but no, but the reason I bring that up is because trauma... A lot of trauma uh, comes from drinking too much. Foot trauma. Foot trauma specifically. But Are you you know, any orthopedic trauma, a lot of ortho, mm. like, I don't know what the percentage Stubbing is, but toe. a significant amount. Say, falling. Yeah. Broken toes I've heard of. Well, good luck moving this forward. I think this is an exciting new mm. treatment strategy that you're working on. It's great that you're doing it. It's uh, so, like you said, ubiquitous, and we. it's one of the top three causes of mortality, like you mentioned. It's... Uh, it's kind of almost silly that we're not trying to create newer treatment strategies. So it's great that you're doing this. Thank you for that. Thanks for coming on the show. Next time, maybe we'll talk more about our med school experiences. I'm glad we got the business out of the way this time. I was like, next time we're going to bring a podiatrist on to counterpoint. (laughs) (laughs) Thank Uh, you so much for coming. We appreciate it. My pleasure. That was great. Thanks for listening. Please keep the emails and phone calls coming. Email us at hopquestions at gmail.com. Call us at 408-444-6623. And make sure to like us on Facebook, review us on iTunes, and tell your friends to listen. All antidotes and patient-related details have been changed with respect to date, sex, and certain details so that patient identification is not possible. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.